Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium, with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who won the 2005 Besançon competition. Since then, he's been assistant and then resident conductor with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and had title positions with orchestras in Spain, Switzerland, and his native France. It's a great pleasure to welcome Lionel Brongier. Lionel, lovely to see you and speak to you and meet you. How are you? Hello, I, I'm very fine, thank you. I'm in London this week. Yes, you're in quarantine at the moment, aren't you? Before you yes. conduct the LPO, is that correct? Yes, and uh, I'm very excited because um, I've conducted uh, uh, all the other uh, London orchestras, uh, LSO, Philharmonia, uh, BBC and Royal Philharmonic, and now my debut with LPO. So it was nice to be able to catch you in quarantine with nothing better to do than to chat to me about your life as a conductor, which is great. Exactly. That's why I'm happy uh, yeah. also to participate. I have a lot of time. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, with everybody, Lionel, I go right back to the beginning. And I, I think I know that you're a cellist uh, and you come from a family of musicians in Nice. How did music first come into your life? I'm assuming it was always there, but why the cello and why then? Uh, yes, exactly. I come from a musical uh, uh, family of musicians. Um, my parents don't play an instrument, but they love music. And my, but my, I am the fourth uh, child on five. And uh, my elder sister uh, started piano. Mm. And then all the other kids followed because there was a piano at home. So we all played piano. Uh, and uh, the cello, I always loved it. I always loved the sound. Uh, I would always recognize the instrument. And so I really always said, uh, I want to play the cello. So mm. I played piano and cello. And what age were you when you started the cello? Uh, four, or four and a half, something like that. Oh, wow, yeah. really early. I, 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 had a very small, <laughs> I had a very small cello. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, the cello would be bigger than the person playing it. Um, yeah, yes. That, Yes. <laughs> and so at what stage did you think that music might be something that you would turn into your life, your career, your vocation? All my life. All your life, yeah. Without a doubt, really. Uh, there was a, a teacher of uh, French uh, uh, literature, but uh, at the elementary school, and she, uh, she's a, a friend of my family. So uh, we still... Um, see her and uh, she she likes to remind us that when i was eight years old uh, and you know the teacher says um, uh, what do you want to do uh, later uh, and uh, and i wrote uh, a cellist conductor and composer and finally i uh, am now only conducting <laughs> well it's amazing it's funnily enough i was 50 recently and my mother and father put together a book of stories I wrote when I was a child. And most of them were about being footballer or about being a, a cricketer or something sporty. Uh, <laughs> Sport. it wasn't yeah, it wasn't music for me until I was 15. So I'm assuming you were going to concerts, uh, orchestra concerts and recitals. And did you play in youth orchestras when, um, when you were playing the cello and before you went to conservatoire? No, actually, I played in the conservatoire. There was yeah. a student orchestra. In Nice and then in Paris, um, and uh, yes, it was always a great joy to make music, to play in the orchestra. I always loved it. 
Yeah. So I'm intrigued to know at what stage did you decide to put into practice? Uh, you know, you just said at eight you wanted to be a cellist, a conductor, and a composer. When did conducting really first come into your life? Actually doing it. I mean, it's 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 yeah. different saying that you want to do it when you're eight. It's the same. I wanted exactly. to be ca captain of England football team, but you know, it was it was never going to happen. But when did it? It's very come different. In, yeah. When did it come into your life? Uh, when I when I was uh, 13, I entered Paris Conservatoire uh, as a uh, cellist, yeah. and uh, there was a, a class of initiation to conducting. Yeah. And because there are many, let's say, many options uh, to add uh, mm -hmm. when you enter the, the the class of cello, you you have you have to do also many other things. And and I was immediately when I saw in the papers was initiation to conducting. This was definitely something I wanted to do. Um, I had seen so many orchestral concerts uh, in Nice, in Cannes, in Monte Carlo. We have very good orchestras. Yes. Um, and we were really a lot uh, at the concerts together. Um, this reminds me of one thing, probably we'll get back later, but uh, this week we, we played Brahms, first piano concerto, and um, last year I played Brahms' first piano concerto with my brother huh? in Nice, with the yeah. Nice Orchestra. Oh, wow. and, uh, and this was really uh, very emotional for both of us and for our family because we used to listen a lot to Brahms' first piano concerto together in the family and to attend concerts of the orchestra in Nice where they play Brahms' first piano concerto. So we, we have all, all these kind of, uh, of memories um, and and uh, indeed, yes, there were so many orchestral concerts that I had attended. And when there was this initiation to conducting, I immediately uh, wanted to, to do that. Uh, and actually, there was an audition with, with two pianos, with two pianists. Mm. Uh, and it was uh, Beethoven's 7th Symphony. Then I was admitted to this initiation class. And so one month later, uh, I had just turned 14. Uh, I was in front of the full orchestra. <laughs> I mean, oh, wow. 50, 50 players yeah. of, uh, for Beethoven 7, but with orchestra at the time. And I'd never conducted in my life. And so it was very scary. <laughs> I think along with uh, a Czech conductor called Yuzhi uh, Rogenia, who I spoke to uh, many, many episodes ago, you're about the youngest person to have conducted orchestral forces or anybody at that age. Um, who was teaching you there at the Conservatoire in Paris? Um, she was Claire Levache, mm -hmm. teacher of the initiation to conducting. And then I entered the main, let's say, the main conducting class uh, from Zolt Neucht. Yeah. Uh, so we had uh, four sessions with the main teacher, with Zolt, and four sessions with guest conductors. Okay. And so, and the course was four years. So we got to see a lot of uh, repertoire with a lot of uh, conductors. And it was very nice to, to get really uh, their advice mm. on um, all the repertoire. We have seen really a lot of repertoire because basically uh, there was eight programs uh, every year for four years, so 32 programs. So when I, uh, plus the two, two years as a, in the initiation to conducting, so when I finished, uh, when I got my diploma um, and every student uh, in conducting class who, in Paris who gets the diploma 
gets already a lot of repertoire in hand. And that was very helpful for the future. I always ask this with a name I don't know, a conducting teaching name I don't know, and Jolt Noj, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Hungarian name, I'm guessing, um, is a name that's not come up before. So what I always ask is, what sort of teacher was he? Um, was he somebody who was very much based on stick technique and gesture uh, and less so on score study? Or was he like the Swarovski school, very much based on score study and not very much to do with technique? Or was it a 50-50 whole approach? Exactly, it was all of that. Definitely yeah. we needed to know the score very well uh, and to have a very strong technique, very clear right. technique. It was very tough uh, yeah. about being really precise and, uh, and to have very clear gesture. Yeah. And again, this was very helpful uh, when I then, uh, after Besançon I, uh, competition, I went uh, quite soon to the US. Sometimes there is not much rehearsal time, like actually in the UK, there are not yeah. much rehearsal time. They need a, a precise conductor. Yes. And of course, the, the musicality is very important. Yeah. But musicality alone, without the technique, is not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, for those who don't live in the UK or don't work in America, where well, I've never worked, so I don't know to what extent it's like the UK, but sometimes you can do a, you know, a whole concert on just a three-hour rehearsal. And whilst it would be nice yes. to stop and chat to the orchestra and tell them things, <laughs> there, are, there are times when you just have to be able to do it with a gesture or a look yes. or a smile or a nod or a wink at a player as if to say, yeah, you know, and I know and that's what we want. And, and there is not time to stop and discuss everything. And so you do need a clear technique. So it sounds like next week the LPO are going to get a, a piece you love with a clear technique. Well, it's a win-win situation. <laughs> uh, tomorrow, actually, it starts oh, tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow, so fine. I'm really, yeah. really excited. Going back to um, Jolt and teaching and whatever else, you also said that you were meeting guest conductors. I've asked this quite a lot recently. That I would imagine, you know, if you look at my own life, and you know, I was taught by the same violin teacher for four years, but then you had masterclasses with other people, and you took things from them, and then you discarded yes. other. So when you were chatting to the guest conductors, were you always thinking, what can I add? How can I add it? Or you would watch somebody rehearse and think, yeah, I understand why they're rehearsing like that, but that's not for me. That's not my way. How, how difficult or easy did you find it to, to add things to what Jolt was teaching you? Uh, actually, there were um, conductors, uh, but uh, I meant there were guest teachers. Oh, I see. So they, Good. They, yeah. so they would come and teach us, actually, yeah. for two weeks. Yeah. So one week was called uh, work at the table. So basically only with the students with and the score. We were around uh, between 10 to 12 students and the lessons were the four years together. So yeah. when I entered my first year, uh, I was together with uh, students who were already in the fourth year getting the diploma. So mm. we were always all together. It was a very nice, very nice period, very nice atmosphere. And... Um, Usually, of course, when there is a, a guest teacher, the first day he, he arrives in the class, you know, we know already each other and, and, and the guest teacher. So we were all uh, looking uh, a bit 
together at the score and then getting the, the advice from the teacher. And then by the, when we entered the second week with the teacher, with the orchestra, of course, we all knew each other uh, much better. And of course, uh, all the teachers were all different. Mm, mm. Uh, and it was the same then later on when I was assistant in Los Angeles. I was assistant to the music directors, to Eza Pekka Salonen and Gustavo Dudamel, but also to all the guest conductors. Mm. And I was always learning something for, from them, definitely. Well, we're going to come to um, LA Phil very soon. I've got a, a, very, a couple of questions about the, your time. Yes. There. But you did mention that you took part in the Besançon competition uh, in 2005 and won. Um, I've had other winners of the Besançon competition on the podcast. And to me, I think the most important thing about that competition is the fact that you get a year with a, a mentor in the management world after winning, or at least Jonathan Hayward did. Was that part of the prize when you won as well? Uh, but the, the thing is that I didn't really need that because I immediately signed with a great manager actually yeah. and, and of course then then uh, we, we were always in, in discussion of definitely course. yes yeah, from yeah. the very first moment um, the day of the final I had a, a facsimile from uh, from um, the manager yeah, yeah. Oh, well that's good so and, and then I yeah. signed and and uh, I had immediately also advices because it was a, a big company you know Ascona's Holt yeah. Uh, and they know exactly what they do. Yeah. yeah. So that well, that must have really helped on the day of the final. If you've got a, you've got a letter or a fax from Askenas Holt saying, "Would you like to come and join us?" Was that just before the final? So you knew that was happening, whether you won or not. Uh, yeah, there were there were yeah. actually uh, several agencies the, yeah. the same morning. So. <laughs> Uh, it was a it was a busy week. Yeah, you can go into that final, and it's almost a win win because at that stage of your career, every young conductor is looking for representation. They're looking for an agent or a manager, and so you can go into that final thinking, "Well, I don't need to win to get this. I've got it already." Which is that must have helped. What did you conduct in the final? Can you remember? Yes, yes, yes. Mm. It was Laval's. Uh, we oh. had a, a world premiere from. Uh, uh, Philippe Fenelon, then Tchaikovsky Rococo Variation with Marc Copé and Ravel Lavals. It was nice to play Lavals with the Orchestre National du Capitole. Yeah, I bet. You know, yeah. they know very well this repertoire. And, yeah. uh, uh, it was a very busy week. Yeah. Uh, and now I am with uh, another great agency, uh, Harrison and Powers. And uh, uh, since uh, one year and a half, and I'm very, very happy. Mm. Uh, and and uh, yeah, again, you know, great managers they they give good advice. Of so course, it's it's uh, always very nice. So after a couple of assistants and associates, then you your six years in LA with the LA Phil. So you start as assistant, later become associate, and then the first ever resident conductor of the LA Phil. You had you mentioned it yourself. You you were uh, formed a relationship with two music directors there, so you saw the end of Essa Paca Salonen and the start of Gustavo Dudamel. Um, first of all, let's go to the conductors. How were they? How different were they to assist and to be around? Uh, obviously, two very different characters, two greats of the conducting world. But what differences did you did you get between Essa Paca and uh, Gustavo? Of course, they are very different. Um, what was interesting for me to, to see at, uh, at the time, it was really considered uh, as a golden age for the, for the orchestra. Mm. Uh, 
for me, it was interesting to see the relationship of a, a music director when it's the end of the tenure and another uh, music director when it's the beginning of the tenure. Mm, and, and it was very, very good for me to, to see that. And uh, um, It has been always a very, very special relation with the LA Philharmonic. You know, I've been there now since the uh, uh, first time was for the audition in 2006. Mm. Uh, I was even uh, not uh, 20 years old. So I remember that um, uh, in a restaurant we wanted to celebrate with the, with the CEO, yeah. Deborah Border. Uh, we wanted to have a glass of champagne, but they didn't let me in the restaurant because under 21, <laughs> you can't. So it was great <laughs> to, to, to oh, have um, suddenly uh, 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 this important position of assistant conductor of a major orchestra and not celebrate with champagne. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you, you sort of answered one of my standard questions about assistant conducting, which is, were you assistant to the orchestra or were you assistant to the music director? It sounds like you were assistant to both because you were assistant to the music director and then did the guest conductors. In uh, I, was assistant, I was assistant to the orchestra. Yeah. So it means, yeah. it means uh, assisting the music director yeah. and spending many weeks with the music director, uh, assisting the guest conductors, mm and conducting the orchestra. And actually it was really fantastic because I could conduct uh, the LA Philharmonic very, very often. And um, there were all the youth people concerts, the family concerts. I had also Hollywood Bowl concerts. Mm -hmm. I had subscription concerts. And some of the seasons I was conducting them, uh, I counted 40 times. Wow, wow, wow. For 40 concerts. Wow. So it's a, it's a huge amount mm. of, uh, of work. And um, since then, I've been back uh, very regularly as well as a guest conductor. It's always a great joy. My second question about the LA Phil really is about, and, and being so young, I would imagine this was important to you, hopefully, is that, you know, if you started working with them and being around them from the age of 20, you, you know, you've, you've had, you did six years in a position there, um, assistant and associate and then resident, and you would have got to know the players of the orchestra. Now, I was a player in the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and we, you know, and after that, we've had assistant conductors similar age that you were, 22, 23, and... I think that relationship between the players and the young conductor is so important. You're, the players are, almost feel like they're catching a conductor at the right time to be able to teach them things from within the orchestra. But also the young conductor is, has got this incredible, it's like having you know all of the encyclopedias of the world in front of you orchestrally. You can ask anybody anything and they should give you great advice. What, was the, what were the early days like and how have the players been with you through the time that you were there working with them? Oh, it was a really, really fantastic time. I mean, uh, I was accompanying the orchestra on tours and the LA right. Philharmonic at that time, they were touring for three weeks in a row. And so we're, when we were going to Asia, I would travel to the orchestra. I would sit in the plane for 12 hours near uh, two members and then another flight uh, next to two other members and I meet them for breakfast. Right. So I, I was really talking actually to everyone um it has been always a love affair yes yes um and and of course yes they, they i uh, they would tell me um, anecdotes about the past and uh, even about back of the days of zubin meta and right. and then later on with giulini 
they they it's an incredible uh, orchestra well you get you get that i had that when i joined the cbso as a player that you hear stories from the old days of hugo rignold and fremo and and all of this um but yeah. then what you what you also get is that ability to ask somebody something that you know that you've conducted in rehearsal and it wasn't together that you might ask their advice or you're sitting watching a guest conductor and some one of the players might come up to you in the in the queue for coffee in the break and say, do you know what he just said then? Don't ever do that, Lionel. That's really <laughs> bad. You know, they're, they're the sort of things that as an assistant, you can't you can't buy a book. You can't read this stuff. <laughs> Nobody can teach you this stuff, can they? I think that's the best lesson, yes, to be mm -hmm. assistant conductor because indeed you receive those, those kind of... of uh, of uh, nice nice comments and yeah. uh, and uh, and i mean and and the daily life you understand better the daily life of an officer and actually that's um uh why it was a very um, uh, important for me to go there because uh, when i won besançon and i signed uh, with uh, management and there were really invitations from everywhere and uh, the some of the best orchestras in the world mm. uh, at 19 i got to conduct dresden Staatskapelle. Wow. wow. You know, and uh, and, uh, and uh, you have to be prepared for that. And so for me, it was a very good um, time. Instead of accepting all of those invitations, uh, to go to LA, spend many weeks with a great orchestra and get the advice from guest conductors, from music directors, from the musicians, and be in a very warm environment. Yes. So, the, so I'm very grateful to, to the team there. Yeah. I mean, your first music director job was the Orchestra Sinfonica de Castilla y Leon. Yes. In Valladolid, in Spain. I mean, that ran the whilst you were there for the three years that you were there. That was the same time you were still in, in L.A. So I suppose you could go back and, and pick uh, Dudamel's brains. Or... And I, I was also in, in uh, Britain still with the Orchestra Bretagne. So I had the three position. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in 2009, 2010. Um, this was this was very good time, yes. And I still <laughs> go back, of course, to Valladolid. Yeah. But bit, and bit... to Zurich. I go, so, yes. so I always kept very good relationship with the orchestras. Yeah. yeah, but busy times. And I suppose what I was trying to get at is that that was your first music director job. But you still yeah. had you still had the ear of Esapeco or the ear of Gustavo Dudamel, and you could go back and say, "Look, I've got this problem in Spain. Did you ever do that?" And go back and ask their advice. The the great thing is that 2009 was the first season of Gustavo mm. in LA, yeah. and 2009 was my first season as music director in Valladolid. And so always, of course, yes, when I would go back from a week in LA. I would have been very inspired yeah. by, by the work of Gustavo with the orchestra. And that helped me for my work in Valladolid and actually yeah. to, to, um, to, to start uh, as a music director. You've just mentioned Zurich, which was the Tonhaller Orchestra, which you were there for yep. four years between 2014 and 2018. This is a question I've asked, especially of countries that seem to be vastly different. I mean, it's very difficult not to get into stereotypes here. But if you take your orchestra in Valladolid and then your orchestra in Zurich, were there many differences in the way that they worked and the way that they rehearsed and the way that they played, um, you know, being 
one from Spain and one from Switzerland? Well, the, of course, yes. The answer is in is in the question. You take an orchestra yeah. from Finland will be different than in Portugal or in the US or in yeah. Japan, of course. And yeah. and that's actually a good thing, I think. Yes. Uh, it's uh, of course there is a kind of international uh, internationalization. Yeah. But still, you can recognize. Uh, uh, let's take one example in Spain. Yeah. There is this famous siesta. Mm. You know, people go, musicians go to take a nap. Yeah. In London, not so much. So the break is one hour in London. Yeah. For example, you have one rehearsal, 10 to one break, and then you start again uh, because maybe the people, they live uh, far, they go to work, they have a small uh, lunch break, afternoon rehearsal, they go back home. In Spain, there is this uh, very... Um, for all the country, any job. So rehearsal is from 10 to 1 and then 4 to 7. Mm. <laughs> so you see there is this three hours uh, break between the two rehearsals. That's one yeah. of the difference, of course. But yes, um, th there is a difference of lifestyle and uh, different for everything then. Well, I think in London, if you told them that people there were going to do something like 10 till 12 and 4 till 7, they'd probably try and fit in a film session or a recording session in between. <laughs> yes, exactly. They'd, 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 they will, they'd, they will fill it with more yeah, work. Yes. Absolutely, <laughs> fill it up completely. Um, but then, then I must say, actually, when you go uh, for, to the rehearsal, really to the way of, of rehearsing, mm. the detail of rehearsal, I don't see any difference in the world. You know, you have the yeah. orchestra, you play, let's say, Brahms one, you are in Tokyo, you are in LA, you are in France. You just start the rehearsal, you know, and yeah. then you have players, you play, you hear what the orchestra is giving you, then you, you, you start to work, and then you, you have your rehearsals, then after two or three days, or... Uh, in the UK is a little bit uh, after one one or two days. Then you have the dress rehearsal and first concert. And actually, uh, I find it also very good that uh, doesn't matter in which country, which city you are. It's always uh, for me. I, I found it always quite easy to organize my rehearsals because this is uh, more and more similar. Let's say uh, in Spain, I gave the example of the, of the longer break, but at the end, it was six hours rehearsals. When yeah. I'm in London, you have six, six hours rehearsal in a day as well, and, and you, you, you organize your rehearsal time. Mm, absolutely. Um, you just mentioned working all over the world. You, you have a relationship, I think, with uh, the Opera House in your home city of Nice. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, and I see that you're also working in other opera houses. When you... this. Forgetting COVID ever existed, before COVID and now after COVID, um, fingers crossed. When you speak to your managers at Harrison Parrot, do you have a percentage time where you, you during a year, for instance, where you, you would say to them, look, I'd like to do two operas next year, the rest with symphonic work, and I'd like two weeks off to go to the Seychelles for my, ho my, my holiday. Um, do you have that sort of idea of every year of what you want to do the, between opera and between symphonic? Because you do conduct both. I do conduct both. Uh, I still conduct more symphonic. Yeah. Uh, and so symphonic, I find it quite easy to organize because it takes one week. Yes. 
And uh, uh, my my team, uh, Ed, uh, Lydia, and Megan, they are very good at. I mean, we had a discussion before starting uh, uh, working together, and actually they were they came to Nice, and we we spent really a good time talking. But um, and again, as it takes only one week, it's more easy to organize when you have 52 weeks, you know? Yes. And so you have one week work, one week off, you know, you have one week at home. Now also the, the schedule is kind of different because sometimes I'm at home in this, but I work because yeah. I'm with the orchestra there. Um, it's quite easy actually to, to organize, you know, the schedules are quite long time ahead, two, two or three seasons ahead. So simply, let's say um, one orchestra is asking if I'm free, but I'm, I'm already busy, then uh, they try to find another week. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's quite easy to organize. And, you know, it's really week by week. And so we feel some week. I don't conduct 48 weeks a, a season <laughs> and have four, four weeks where. So, so it's actually, you know, you have some weeks where you work, some months where you work more, uh, some months where you work less. Now with COVID, it's totally different. But for instance, I had two weeks in Poland in March with the National Orchestra in Katowice. Then I had two weeks at home. Uh, I have a, a small baby now with six ah. months old. So it was oh, very nice to, to spend. Thank you. So it was very nice to spend the two weeks uh, at home. Then now I have two weeks in a row, London and Zurich. Uh, then in May, I have uh, uh, less, uh, I have more free time. And then June, I have some weeks with the Opera House in this. So, um, yeah, but this has been uh, an easy balance to find. Well, as we all know, conductors, when they go home, are not just sitting at home. You may well be at home changing nappies and uh, mm. getting to know your young baby. But during that time at home, we'll be learning scores. And every single conductor I've asked this question when you come to learn a new score do you have a system do you sit at the piano and work things out or do you sit at your desk do you listen to recordings um and also do you make make a lot of markings in your score are you a red blue and black or are you just pencil or do you use no markings at all and commit it all to memory like a genius how do you do it from start <laughs> to finish um I, I work uh, at the table. Yeah. So what I, like I have learned at the Paris Conservatoire. And so again, it was two years initiation, four years conducting class. So a total of six years. So then it was always the same system. But in the conducting class, we, we had really a lot of repertoire to learn and sometimes not a lot of time. Mm. And so I, uh, I um, realized that any... Any minute is useful when you have your score. Uh, so I remember at that time, I was sometimes going, uh, uh, I was go taking the, the metro, the tube to, I had 30 minutes and sometimes it was crowded, but still I was with my score putting yeah. some, some markings. So then it was only with the pencil. But usually I tried, so I, I have time. Let's say I have one week in this, I have time. I try to have a, it's a routine. So from the morning, uh, I, I start. I open the score and have my blue and red marks, <laughs> markings, and my pencil. And uh, and then I just start. I read uh, the the score. 
Uh, I tried to read also maybe a biography of the composer. Um, then if it's a contemporary piece, I try to have a connection with the composer. Mm. Of course, uh, that's uh, the, the best we can get. I mean, yes. when, when we have... When we have Brahms or Beethoven, we, we can't ask questions. But when, when we are lucky to have the, the composer, it's it's good to... Next week, uh, I have a Dalbavi flute concerto. I, I know very well Marc-André Dalbavi. Mm. Uh, I've performed uh, his flute concerto several times, and I know him personally. So this is very nice. It's the same when, when uh, I play with a soloist. You know, we, we meet before the, the rehearsal with orchestra. So tomorrow I meet with Stephen. Uh, one hour before the orchestra yeah. rehearsal to talk about through the piece. Um, yeah, and I try, when I decide to program a piece, so first of all, I read a lot of scores in general, even if I'm not conducting them. I yeah. try to always discover new scores, and that's how I get to discover pieces like Prokofiev Symphony Number no. 4 that now I performed. It actually started now several years ago that I had the score and I studied. I thought, will I want to perform it or not? Mm. And then when it, I know it's a yes, then I develop and I, I go more deeply. But usually much long before I even uh, start to program it. Yes. So usually when I program repertoire, um, uh, I have studied it uh, quite a lot. Then I, I would say it doesn't matter which 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 color uh, I use because <laughs> indeed I've spent so many hours uh, reading the the score that the music gets uh, naturally uh, in the in the head in the mm. body. So usually when I program a piece, I've spent already many years with it. That's for even for the new piece. But then when it's a piece uh, I have done for a long time, let's say, Ravel Lavals, you know, uh, I did it at Besançon competition and even before the Paris Conservatoire. Uh, some of the pieces I, I've, I've known for almost uh, 20 years now. So, but it's, I always uh, go back to the score. Yeah. Always, I, uh, always the most important. You're absolutely right in what you're saying is that there are some pieces that we discover as conductors out of nowhere and then you decide I must conduct this piece but sometimes yes. it can take you know I remember hearing the Corn Gold Symphony in F sharp for the first time oh, thinking, I, uh, yeah, I heard I, about it from a friend yes yeah I've got I, I, I've got to conduct that piece I did five years later but the point oh. is that, you know, actually learning marking and learning the score took me about a year slowly but that piece was in my head and I was learning it for five years I mean that you know that's the sort of build-up time that we often have then there are other occasions when you might be asked to jump in with an orchestra next week and you've got a short 10-minute overture you've never heard in your life and you've got to suddenly cram learn that somehow um, and learn it you try and get it as qu as quickly into your brain as possible and, mm. and so we do sometimes have two systems of learning don't we sometimes there's the long burn and then there's the short explosion of learning when you just got to learn it in in 48 hours uh, this happened actually um, in Los Angeles when yeah. I had to to step in for conductors uh, one time it happened actually during uh, during the concert yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, Gustavo, uh, this I can I can mention this story because it was even in the newspaper. But so Gustavo was uh, getting injured during the concert, and so at the break they told me he can't yeah. do the second half, so you have to do it. 
It was Tchaikovsky 6. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a piece uh, everyone knows quite well. Yes. But still, yeah. <laughs> that's the kind of situation where you have no time to think and I just take to to put my clothes, uh, my conducting, uh, my suit on and and start. And if you're lucky, your score your score for Tchaikovsky Six is in the building. If you're unlucky and you have to use another conductor score, sometimes that can be really. I did a late jump in for Andres Nelsons on a tour with the CBSO, and I was looking down at these scores and thinking, and you know, conducting music I knew, but looking and thinking, what does that marking mean? What does that <laughs> great big scribble mean there? You know, because it was somebody else's score it's such a yeah, private yeah. thing I, isn't I, it yeah yeah i think everyone has uh, their own notation yeah very much well i didn't understand how do you most... how do you mark how do you mark i use red for my everything to do with my hands and arms and tempi uh Ritter dandy or cello andy or how many beats in the bar i use blue for dynamics and articulations and i use black for everything else so okay. that's how I use my scores. And I the, every time I use them, I write other things in or I find a misprint and I put that in there. So I'm always prepared. It's, you know, it's like your Bible that, you know, every time you go back to it, you read another chapter and think, oh, I don't, don't remember that or I didn't spot that. Yeah. Um, so I'm quite close to my scores. If I lost any of them, as you can see, they're, they're all sitting behind me on the Zoom. Yes. Um, you know, that if I lost any of them, especially ones, pieces that I did do a lot, you know, pieces that I love, then I'd be uh, struggling. Um, in fact, I'm going to Glasgow next week to work with some students, and uh, they asked me to look at Mendelssohn three for a piano class. I went over there to my scores and discovered my old score of Mendelssohn three. I must have thrown it away. All I've got is a brand new one. I've got no markings for Mendelssohn three at all. And I think, what did you do that for? I've lost it. I don't know what I've done with it. So oh. yeah, it was one of those mornings. So you have to rewrite. I have to rewrite. I have to rewrite. But normally I would transfer. If I get a new score because it's fallen apart, I would transfer it in. That's what I would do. Um, but yeah, they're, they're very precious to me. I know some conductors couldn't care less. They could turn up and just take the score out of the library of the orchestra that they're working with. Uh, and they've said so on the podcast. Well, good for them. I wish I could do that, but I can't. Mm. I, you know, I have to have all of my thoughts in my scores. and It works for me and I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> <laughs> If you're fascinated by how a score is marked up, I've written an article on the subject, showing my own method and explaining how I go about the process of marking and learning a score. You can see this article, as well as other articles, bonus mini-episodes, interviews and videos, by subscribing from just £5 a month to my Patreon page. If you decide to pay annually, you can even get a 10% discount over the year and join the discussion all about conductors and conducting at a discounted rate. This is quite a saving if you choose to pay for the highest rate, which includes conducting lessons from myself as part of that package. The details are in the show notes attached to this episode, and it would be great to have more of you subscribing to this ever-growing supporters club. Now, back to my chat with Lionel Brongier and the all-important 10 questions. Lionel, it's time for the 10 questions, and as usual, I start with... What sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? Uh, I come from Nice, mm. and uh, I love to walk uh, uh, on, on the promenade des Anglais and hear the waves. And yeah. uh, uh, so I mentioned in the interview before, but now I have a, a little uh, baby, and uh, I took him the other day to the promenade, and 
And then when he saw the, the waves and he was so happy. <laughs> and, and so uh, I am as well. That's a, a noise I love. So, uh, a sound I don't like so much is a um, cell phone ring. Yes. In general, in general, because it doesn't matter where you are, you always hear a ring, a cell phone ringing. And um, I think it's a bit disturbing. I try to have mine uh, on silent. Actually, mine is always on silent. So. There's a very famous, uh, well, I don't know what you would call him, entertainer, Stephen Fry in this country, who um, he comedian, uh, presenter, actor. He's very, very famous in the UK and, and further afield. And he once said, he said, it's the rudest device on the planet, the telephone. Mm -hmm. It's like somebody coming up to you and saying, speak to me now, speak to me now, speak to me now. That's what a phone does. You know, it, by ringing as it does, that's basically what it's doing is, is shouting at yeah. you to speak to somebody. Um, and it is, it's, a, it's, yeah, it can be very, very jarring. And I wish you all the loveliest days taking your young son into the sea for the first time, oh, playing on the beach uh, for the first yes. time. I remember this it well. This was really fantastic. Yeah. My, children are, <laughs> my children are 18 and 22, but I still remember it very, very, very well. Oh, that's great. Well, maybe uh, for question three, you might do... Fill your 24 hours free with playing with your young son. What would you spend 24 hours free doing? Well, 24 hours uh, in a row. So then you have to keep busy. And that's exactly what I did with the quarantine. And so mm. reading books and uh, studying scores. Uh, well, in that case, the, the phone was helpful because I <laughs> could be in touch with, with my wife and yeah. with my son, with my family, all my family. Um, well, typically in uh, 24 hours, I would do also uh, um, some yoga and some exercise. Uh, if in, it's not in quarantine, I love to walk. Mm. So to, to walk, usually any city where I am, I'm walking a lot. And uh, it, can, it can be even many, many hours. <laughs> I love it. It's a real joy of what we do when we guest conduct, isn't it? To go to a city. It can be a new city or it can be a city you've been to many times. But to have, you know, we're normally finished by four o'clock. In some places like Scandinavia, yeah. you're finished by two o'clock in Norway yes. or Finland. Yeah, exactly. You've got the rest yeah. of the day, you can go and have a lovely walk down by a lake or in a park. Or yeah. it, is a, exactly. it is a real bonus, isn't it? Yes, and, and also, possibly um, in the case of, uh, of, of uh, after a rehearsal, it can be very, very noisy uh, in, a, in a symphony hall, in a yes. concert hall, and yeah. uh, in a rehearsal, and uh, particularly if you conduct a, a loud piece and you rehearse it, it's tiring for everyone for the ears. Yeah. Uh, if you have a lot of brass percussion in that piece, lots of fortissimo. And uh, I always find it very nice now after a rehearsal to, to walk and uh, close to nature. And, yeah. and I realized all the cities in the world have always a park or a place to walk. Uh, and that's, I find it um, a very nice balance. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? When I was a student, uh, I used to uh, love Karayan. Uh, and also, well, I... I like, in fact, different styles. And, and yeah. I know sometimes it sounds surprising because it's like, for example, well, I love tennis and mm. the people either love Federer or Nadal. It has always been like that. You know, yeah. you can't like both. And, and for me, no, I, I, 
I like both and I even like Djokovic. Same for conductors in the past I, I liked and they can be as different as Toscanini or Ford Wengler. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They were genius. They were yeah. genius. And, and so I get inspired uh, by all of them. But I would say um, Karajan, Toscanini, Ford Wengler for the past. Isn't it funny that people seem to... You have to be in one camp or another. Why? Why do I have to be a Federer or a Nadal? Yeah. Or, or any sport, you know? Or it, It's the same in politics. It's the same as, you know, why can't I like both? Um, and it's the same with conductors. And they're three brilliant choices. Now, the next question, <laughs> some people complain about. Others don't mind this question. Who would be a favourite current conductor or conductors? Um, well, when I was in LA, I can really say that that Isapeka and Gustavo were really an inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. So I learned a lot from them. I liked very much Abado. Mm. Uh, I like very much Zubin Mehta. I like yeah. very much Daniel Barenboim. Uh, I like very much Simon Rattle. I used to go to his rehearsals. Actually, when, whenever I, uh, I could, my brother, Nicola, with, with whom I played uh, Brahms, uh, Brahms one recently, uh, he lives in Berlin. Ah, okay. Since 20 years. And so I used to go uh, quite a lot, mm. quite a lot. And I, I went again uh, recently and I always see a, try to see a rehearsal uh, of um, Barenboim or, uh, uh, yeah, to, to, I, I try to write on as many things as I can. The, the, one time uh, I was uh, conducting in Vienna, I was doing my debut with Vienna Symphony and I attended it was rehearsals of Ricardo Muti with the Vienna Philharmonic. Yeah, I always yeah. like to, to, to attend uh, rehearsals of conductors. I mean, we learn so much as young conductor to, to see all these giants. But you never stop learning, do you? You know, I, I no, enjoy exactly. going to rehearsals, other people's rehearsals, younger or older than me, and I, because you never stop learning. You, you know, you can hear all sorts of things from the orchestra, but also hear a new way of Rehearsing things could be a sentence, could be a word, but it could be something that inspires you. Yeah, definitely. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I think uh, the I would not say now that it's the hardest work, but at that time it was the very first time I conducted Rite of Spring. Yes, I found it ext extremely difficult to to put the music in the head, yes. and actually to study it. Uh, I had studied it already for many years and, and always get back to the score. But then the first time, first of all, the orchestra is larger than most of repertoire because you, you have not woodwinds by two or three, but woodwinds by five. Mm. Uh, you have many horns, uh, many brass, uh, trumpets, trombones, you know, tuba, percussions. And, and then uh, you, you arrive to a point where... Okay, you have studied the score, but still now is the first <laughs> rehearsal of Rite of Spring. Mm. And um, that was, I think, the most stressful, yes. Mm. Then otherwise, there are difficult pieces, I, I, I think, uh, when you do it for the first time, like Mahler 2. Mm. I mean, it's long. Uh, there is a, a, a lot of, of different atmosphere to find, uh, plus the meaning of the piece. These are pieces uh, um, that, yes, when it's the first time. But, but all the major pieces, when you do it for the first time, you find it different. I mean, <laughs> Beethoven 9, for example, when I was doing it for the first time, I, I, for many months, I was really 
really thinking of it and and uh, uh, because it can be what I mean is not only um, technically but uh, you want to really give the maximum for for the interpretation for when it's such great music yeah mm. but but uh, uh, technically I would say right of spring <laughs> well it's interesting I vowed that I would only conduct the right of spring for the first time with either a very good amateur orchestra or a conservator orchestra so yeah. that I could get to know it. Um, and the first time I did it complete was with the conservator orchestra in Birmingham. But um, I was sent a schedule for a CBSO uh, schools concert and the presenter had chosen the dance sacral to the end of uh, the Rite of Spring, something like the last five minutes of music, which for a conductor, if you've never learned it or studied it, I'd played it hundreds of times, but never. So I had four weeks to learn the last five minutes of the Rite of Spring and, and to do it with the CBSO for the first time in a very short two hour rehearsal. And then we were doing the concerts. And so that was exactly as you say, one of the most stressful experiences of my entire yeah. life. Um, I got to the end and just went, oh, and the orchestra looked at me and smiled because yes. I actually had told them exactly what I've just told you and all of the podcast listeners was that I'd planned to do it quietly somewhere out the way for the first time. But mm. then I, I also had a discussion with Louis Longray once many, many, many years ago. And he seemed to think that Petrushka was harder to conduct than the Ride to Spring. Maybe he was worried about the, there's so many tempo relations in Petrushka. Mm compared to the right of spring. So some people obviously don't worry about it. To me, oh, it, it freaked me out for a whole month before I did it. Yeah, and many conductors, uh, I heard many conductors saying that, that Petrushka is more difficult. Um, I can understand what they mean because now, right of spring, uh, I have done it with, with several orchestras several mm. times and, and it doesn't uh, seem as difficult as it was when I did it the first time. Petrushka is always difficult because it's always difficult for the orchestra. Right of spring, all the orchestras know it so well. And as you mentioned, yes. when you played it, you played it hundred times. And I think yeah. it's not difficult for any orchestra anymore. Petrushka is still difficult and you always need rehearsal time, even with a very good orchestra. Mm. Um, but for me, uh, why I find Petrushka easier is simply that I, it's one of the first piece I studied at the <laughs> Paris Concertoire and mm. I also played it in the orchestra mm. and so simply I know it better in fact than, than uh, Right of Spring and there are few pieces like that that I know from the, conserva from the conservatoire time and, uh, and uh, indeed really it, it's, it's not so difficult anymore like uh, because I, I did it back then mm. and, mm. and then it was really we have we had uh, more, even more time to, to prepare it uh, and to really get the music in the, in the head. And I have a few pieces like that. It makes a big difference, I have to say. I agree. It really does make a big difference. When you've played it before, uh, conducting it seems a lot easier. I don't know why, but it just does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true, because also you, you know what the orchestra, uh, you, you can anticipate better what will be the, the, the difficulties for the players. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, books, then, that are not music, yeah. Mm -hmm. I would take books and uh, running shoes, yeah. Even if I, I don't, sometimes I run, but sometimes not. Uh, but then I walk 
let's say with with running shoes yeah um and uh sometimes because i uh i love tennis uh sometimes with my tennis racket and if the if there is a let's say only morning rehearsal 10 to 1 and all the afternoon free that can happen that i i would uh go to a tennis court and uh, and take a lesson or just keep playing because it, when i'm in this um i play regularly what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor that's something i always uh, felt uh, and and uh, and i always said this also in interviews and but i see myself as a as a as a musician among other musicians mm. and I maybe now it's changing a bit but back uh, in the past you know you have you had uh, always this idea of the, the kind of dictator or <laughs> yeah and 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 so that's something I wanted to change but so now it has been many years and uh, I always had a friendly uh, uh, approach friendly relation with the players and consider really my egal and mm. and uh, and uh, not uh, superior or anything like that. So a, mu- a musician among other musicians, and uh, and for me that's uh, yeah something I would like to to see more more often. But it's already happening. I think now you see this. You see also uh, more younger con- conductors mm. than before. Uh, at at the beginning when I started. Uh, uh, there was not many young conductors, mm. and uh, and uh, and so maybe the approach the approach has been changing. I think. I think you're right. I think that well, I think the days of the dictator are gone, and I yeah. think things like Me Too and all of the you know these cases of harassment and I think has has finally killed off the dictator as a conductor or conductors as a dictator. There is still the odd attitude among some players. Uh, I met one quite recently, who this them and us, because I was stood on the podium. He he felt that he could have a he could argue with me and be aggressive, you know. And my argument is, I'm just here to make music with you this week. I'm not here to I'm not here to show anything or be anything. Um, mm. And I think, as you said, you know, more and more young conductors coming in. Uh, I think I think it's helped. It's it's helped that situation. I think it's important and that people know that we're just here to make music. We're not, I'm not here yes, to and, anything else. And if I can add something, uh, we see also a lot more uh, women conductors. And yes. I think that's really fantastic. I was uh, a jury of the first um, international competition called La Maestra. Yes, that's right. To, really, yeah, to yeah. promote, to promote um, women conductors. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the script, the, all the competition was very high level and the three finalists were very good. Yeah. Um, and uh, some of them already got uh, position with orchestras, and that's that's really good. Yeah, I think the the relationships between orchestras and conductors, and the other way around, is getting healthier and healthier and healthier. And I think that's that's a good thing. I think you know, yeah. even from the very oldest, you know, who seems a lovely chap, Herbert Blomstedt, right down to the youngest coming out of conservatoires, that they we're just musicians who want to make music with other musicians. We just happen to be mm-hmm. doing it with a a baton in one hand, possibly, maybe. Um, but yeah, brilliant answer. Um, number nine, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? This one is difficult because again, it comes back from all my childhood where I always uh, 
saw myself as a conductor. So I, I never uh, thought of something else. <laughs> um, Not even a tennis pro. Yes, I, w- I would have said that, but my level <laughs> is way too bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, the point is, I didn't, I didn't preface it by saying that you know, your answer could be real or fantasy. I mean, you know, I, in my fantasy days, I wish I was an opening bowler for England as a cricketer or, you know, as I said, football when I was a kid, but that was never going to happen. But still, it's a fantasy that, you know. If I was not conductor, I could have been a professional cellist. Yes. Uh, I wanted uh, maybe also to... Uh, I mean, I played uh, at some point, but it was around Besançon, and I was playing a lot of concerts with my brother as chamber music. Yeah, yeah. So, so if it can be an answer with music, then yes, cellist, definitely. If, if I was not conductor, I would have uh, uh, continued. You know, I was in the Paris Conservatoire and uh, playing uh, uh, in uh, orchestras and uh, playing chamber music. Uh, and I would have loved to continue as well. Now, with the time I, I had, uh, with the time going, I had uh, less time to to practice. Um, but I think I will go back to it now. I want to play for my kid, for example, mm. uh, at home. Yeah. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and with the sauce, are you uh, just a plain spaghetti with a bit of tomato sauce? Uh, spaghetti with some tomato sauce, uh, yeah. uh, maybe the amatriciana. Mm-hmm. Amatriciana is with a little slice of bacon and yeah. tomato sauce. Yeah. Uh, spaghetti al dente and a glass of red wine. Uh, Italian red or any red? French uh, red, surely French red. Fre- French or <laughs> Italian red. Okay. It would be a, it would be a um, French, a Bordeaux. Yeah. Well, it's five, <laughs> it's five o'clock here, so we're, we're heading towards evening meal time. Um, and so, yeah, you've started. My stomach is rumbling. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking, forward, looking forward to going downstairs and seeing what my wife has cooked us for dinner. Maybe you can order it in your... I know you're in an apartment. I was going to say in your hotel. Um, you, could, you can make yourself some pasta. It's been wonderful. Thank you for spending the last hour uh, of your no, thanks to you. Yeah, it's uh, absolute pleasure. And I hope great, after great this, pleasure. hope after this, we can get together and over a glass of wine and have another chat. That would be wonderful. That would be great. Yes. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a conductor who's at the very beginning of her career. She's appeared as a finalist in competitions as both a conductor and a violinist. She's taken part in masterclasses with some of the world's greatest conductors. During the pandemic, she conducted a high-profile jump-in concert with the London Symphony Orchestra, and she's just started as the assistant conductor at the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra in the United States. But until then, bye-bye.